Welcome to the Kickstarter Journeys podcast brought to you by Fundamental Games. Each episode will provide you with some insight and opinions about successfully funded Kickstarter projects from the creators themselves. Here's your host, Wes Woodbury, ready to learn about another successful journey from the popular crowdfunding platform. Enjoy! Hello everybody and welcome to another Fundamental Games Kickstarter journey. Today we have with us Jacob Lindberg from Quartadu Games. Hey Jacob, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Interesting time of life in the world, um, but uh, the board game hobby helps pull me away from it. So I love talking to people like you and, and just working in the hobby to have some fun instead of seeing what's out there right now. Yeah, it's it's a crazy time and board gaming hasn't been more important uh, than right now. Absolutely. All right. Well, Jacob has the d- designer of a game called Sins, which was on Kickstarter last or was it early no it was last year right jacob yeah december month december yeah i knew it carried over or was really wasn't that long ago anyway uh, so sins is an infernal deck builder where you choose your own path filled with actions events and tough take that choices in a small and quick package it's a perfect filler game for fantasy lovers other world connoisseurs and card game aficionados um, and so he had funded this back in december the goal at the time was only $750, so a relatively low goal that we'll talk about, but actually raised $41,000 on basically a $20 game and um, unlocked many stretch goals and just had a, a wonderful time with it. So it was really cool to watch him as a first-time creator have such success with uh, such a small package. So Jacob, um, one thing I always talk about the guests is how did you find Kickstarter and why did you figure that was the right venue for you for this game? Um... I, th- I think that at the moment of the launch, it was not, it's not a question about quick Kickstarter because um, it's something I've been using for the last five years. Um, I have like uh, too many pledges, basically. I, I think 130 pledges on Kickstarter. Um, so, so I know Kickstarter extremely well and I've been following, you know, hundreds of projects. Um, and and to, be, to be honest, I really love the platform. I love that behind the scenes and how creators basically come with this concept, this idea, mock-ups and stuff like that, and just bring something from an idea to fulfillment. And I think that out of the 130 plus projects, um, only two has actually been uh, problematic uh, and one didn't show up. Right. That's not bad. I mean, out of, uh, out of the amount that it sounds like you've backed, uh, I've heard some horror stories, but there you hear a lot more success than you do horror stories. So. Yeah, it's a definitely positive, positive atmosphere and positive platform. And I'm glad you jumped into it. I mean, you guys, um, like I said, raised over $40,000 and hit your goal in a matter of days. And I was curious, how did you establish your goal? Because it was relatively low and it would be hard to make a game for $750. Yeah, so at the, at the time of the, um, the launch, we basically thought to ourselves that our minimum was basically be to do a print of demand. And the minimum print of demand is five copies. So that was basically yeah. what we aimed for. We thought that, well, if this is going to be a wash, let's just do print on demand and uh, we'll get away with, you know, the bare minimum. Um, simply just to establish ourselves. We, we, as I said, uh, I've been pledging a lot of games, um, but from a backup point of view. So this was our first game uh, as a creator. And we wanted to start with something that we can control, something we could actually achieve um, and something with, with very low risk. Um, so we thought that that's going to be our bare minimum. Yeah, that uh, sounds very fair. I mean, when you um, when I looked at the campaign, the actual original game 
had tons of stretch goals with extra cards, but you actually didn't have too, too many pieces of art. So um, if you were to estimate how much the game would have cost, if you would have only had um, the minimum, would you think you would have been in the red or in the green or, or did you make your own art? No, um, the art actually came from a different project. Um, so traveling a bit back to April last year, uh, we started a project called the Muji Art Screen, which is a another design of mine, which is basically a television that you see in a portrait. And for that project, we needed some art. And after we progressed in the project, we needed to do something different. We needed to, to fill in our time. So that's actually how we sort of ventured into board gaming. Um, being a you know, board game hobby, you know, from, from basically a, a customer point of view for the last five years, you know, that's such a big part of my life. And I wanted to do something with my business that could actually, you know, try to combine these things. So we took the, the art that we had from, from the Muji project um, and we had these seven pieces of art, uh, which resemble, you know, different sins. And that became you know, yeah. the foundation. And we basically threw something together that we sort of, you know, let's see if, if, if we can, you know, advertise and entice people with this, uh, this art style, then we can get the funding to actually buy what we need, the rest of it. Uh, because in, in one box, there's 14 different pieces of art. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a really fantastic art. I mean, um, we'll talk about that in just a second, but to, to be able to launch a game with just seven pieces of art plus your core cards, um, it's amazing what you can do with that just that simple amount of uh, cards and how you gained attention. It was really cool how you gained attention with the seven deadly sins. It's almost um, sinful, uh, so to speak. So very cool. Um, now, when you fund a project on Kickstarter, there's sometimes a preset expectation to make that product better through stretch goals. And like you talked about, um, you went in with your seven pieces of art and then um, basically you were unlocking more cards as your main stretch goal. Uh, so how did you kind of predetermine what your game would play like with more cards because most people will have a game that's already fully play tested with a full set of cards and not introduce a whole lot more but in yours you introduced a, a significantly more amount of cards so how does that affect the game yeah so basically we had balanced the game from the beginning with the seven cards um and it was strictly a two-player game at the time um and as we saw that how the project sort of progressed uh we basically felt like that we needed to add more to the box. We needed to add more value to the box. Um, so we, we changed a couple of rules in, in order to make the game, I, I want to say better, um, but, but really we just made it a bit different in terms of incorporating more art, more different cards uh, in each box. Um, so I, I think that basically we, we, we got, we had the allowance to actually, you know, progress the game into more art as we sort of progress through the campaign. Uh, I think that's that's a way to describe it, basically. Yeah. No, and it was definitely well done. And the art itself, like I said, many people won't click unless they see something that catches their eye, and art is the first thing you see. Now, your game actually features some very voluptuous and revealing female characters, which by itself is a marketing strategy, and it's some one that some people use intentionally and some that uh, just use it by accident. Um, what was your intention with that kind of art? Um, it wasn't something we were like, we need you know nudity in our campaign. That was not our intention at all. Um, but we uh, we had this uh, this agreement with uh, Daryl, who's our artist, on this project that you do you basically. Uh, don't let us 
define your art style. This is your style and you do how you do. Uh, of course, we had some, you know, uh, interest in each art being as, you know, close to the, the definition of the sin as possible. So, for example, if you think about wrath and you look at the artwork, you know, those two things should be co- um, should be uh, aligned with each other. Um, but but Dell has uh, he he explains himself as he has a very int- uh, natural interest in in the human body, the human anatomy, and explores that through his art. Uh, so for him, it becomes a natural element in what he does. Um, but we did have a lot of feedback in terms of you know some people wanting even more extreme, and some people wanted less of it. Um, so we actually started to be a bit more aware of it as the progress campaign progressed and the comments sort of started to flow in um, how we actually portrayed, you know, both men and women in this campaign. Um, so we ended up discussing and, and, and having, you know, an internal debate about what's actually our policy on this, this element. Uh, how do we, how do we work with nudity? How do we work with, um, with the female form and the male form and stuff like that? Um, and it, it went into, you know, an, an entire discussion about what about different races and, and how do we portray that and um, make it fair. And I think that when you have a project that is just, you know, a couple of copies, it doesn't really matter because you're, you're talking to a very succinct audience. But as our campaign yeah. grew and, and suddenly all kinds of people were interested in our project, we needed to take care of making sure that no one felt you know, um, left out or, or, you know, that we, we didn't, you know, handle the, 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 the depiction right um, on these cards. So we basically thought, well, this, this is a game about sins and one of the sins is lost. Um, and it's really difficult to make a card like lost without having sexuality. Um, right. So we, we basically took the decision of saying, well, we need to have sexuality in the game, but we need to have it in both male and female form. So that's basically um, how we try to balance it uh, in the end. So we, we, we took it upon ourselves to say, well, we, we're standing by the nudity, but we are trying to make it as equal as possible. Yeah, and one of the neat things that you had, uh, and I saw it in one of your larger pledges, was that you did have a... Uh, basically a normal version and then you had a nsfw or not suitable for work or um, uncensored art book as well uh, so how did you gain a lot of interest with that or was that kind of marginal compared to the base game uh, so our biggest seller was the uh the kickstarter exclusive not safe for work um I, th- I think that every every bag i actually took one of those boxes um or, or the all-in uh, pledge in in the end um, but it was actually a suggestion from a couple of backers. So in the beginning, we didn't really think much about it. Um, but then I think after 10 comments about, you know, can we get full nudity? Um, we actually thought, well, let's let's explore this because it is a game and a brand that we want to be, you know, on the edge. We want to be able to to play around with, um, you know, the, the more unsafe areas of um, of these realms, basically. Um, so I think that it's it's an interesting project, and I don't think that it will work in retail. But I think that for Kickstarter and the platform that Kickstarter is, you can actually do something like this. And I think that that was also part of why we did it. It's like, well, if we want to do it, then let's do it here. Um, so that that's 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 the result of it. 
Yeah, and it's an excellent platform for your website as well. I mean, you sell your games directly off Quartodu Games, so uh, it's maybe something that you wouldn't necessarily see on a shelf that a 12-year-old kid could pick up at a game store, but um, you can continue your sales online just through word of mouth once your backers get those games. Yeah, yeah. so so um, after the campaign, um, we had a lot of interest from, from retailers and distributors, um, and we are sort of building up our company at the moment. Um, and talking to to license and the agents and and stuff like that. Um, so we we did have to take you know uh, some of the more exploratory art out of the picture so we can actually do uh, a sense collection that you can buy at retail. Um, and that that's basically also why we took uh, the choice to make you know the the not safe for work and the art book so that we can offer those as Kickstarter exclusives. So on Kickstarter you can get those elements of the game. Uh, which you won't be able to see in retail. Yeah, and there there is a certain niche of Kickstarter backers that enjoy that exclusivity that you can't get anywhere else. I mean, some people despise it, but th- those people that back it, they, they're in for the, the full pledge. So it's nice to see you be able to reach out to that audience while not totally disappointing the mass audience. Absolutely. Then you had almost 200 backers that went for that $120 pledge that includes the uh, playmats. Did you expect that kind of high volume for the, the high price pledge tier, considering the game is really just a, f- a few sets of cards? And no, but I think that uh, in the beginning, the, the campaign really didn't do that well. Um, I think we got a, a, it's like a thousand um, US dollars every day. Uh, so it wasn't really that much. Um, no, every, uh, yeah, every day. Um, but then suddenly, you know, everything just started to increase very rapidly. Um, so usually yeah, you like see, a, sorry, you see you quickly yeah. for a second. You're, you're right. Because one thing I noticed, and I'm glad you're bringing this up is that you did raise over $25,000 in the last week, which is usually unheard of because that's over half your pledges in the last week. So yeah, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. So usually you see this roller coaster curve, uh, in most Kickstarter projects, but we have this like linear growth every every day, um, and I think that was it is it's a combination between you know it was December month, so a lot of the bigger uh, campaigns basically um, decided not to do anything in December month because they maybe they they thought that people wouldn't have that much money because they were you know Christmas and stuff like that, um, and on the other side you know I think that the progression actually started to help the campaign because we could see the statistics that more and more people found us through uh, the uh, exploratory actions in Kickstarter. Um, and we, we, every day we jumped up a couple of spots uh, on the, um, the popularity track. Um, so I, I think that in the last two weeks, we were on page one, and that really helped it a lot. So I think yeah. that those are the elements that, went, that made it into what it is today. And, and we ended the campaign uh, on almost 800 backers, and... Uh, today, with the backer kit and, and the uh, late pledges, uh, we doubled that number. Uh, so I think that our current total is uh, $70,000. Oh, wow. That's, yeah, significantly more than the Kickstarter itself. So you found a lot of late pledges and, and late support. That's great to see. Now, um, usually campaigns that run like this, they thrive on kind of being in the public eye through videos or through previews. And one of the interesting thing about your game is with such amazing art and um, uh, probably a, a simple to learn play style, you actually didn't have anything in the way of formal review videos by professionals or different services. So what was the decision on that? And how do you feel that impacted your campaign? 
Yeah, so going back to the beginning, we we, we didn't have that much expectation to the campaign. Um, so we, we didn't make any videos. And, and uh, to be honest, we, we, we don't really know how to do uh, playthrough videos um, at the time. So I think that scattered us a bit. And in the end, we, we thought, well, let's let's try this. Uh, there's, there's a full print and play. Uh, people can download and play it. Um, and we thought, maybe that's enough. Uh, and there's a full rule book and, and stuff like that. Um, but as as the campaign progressed, uh, more and more people actually requested, well, where's the playthrough video? Where's the how to play video and stuff like that? Um, and we started to to sort of get the pressure that, okay, we need to do this. So we so halfway through the campaign, we sat down and we started sh- uh, shooting a video about how you play the game. And I think that our initial thought about how how well we would make a video would actually be be quite present at that po- point because it was horrible. It was like every, <laughs> every, everything from the audio to, to the result of the video and the quality was just like, how do people do this? How how do people make YouTube videos? Because this is like, man, this doesn't work. Um, so that scares scares us a lot. Um, and we saw these people having these. Um, you know, different rigs in terms of having an overview camera and side cameras and stuff like that. And we were just like, oh, we're never going to do that. We, how do we do that? Um, yeah. So we thought about many th- different things in terms of, you know, finding uh, local YouTubers that could help us out and stuff like that. But in the end, you know, the campaign just rolled on. Um, and while we, we fought to make a video, in, in the end, it was like, just like, okay, now it's just too late. Let's just drop it yeah. and, and, and let's see where we land. Um, and afterwards, we actually had good time and we had professional help to, to support us creating a video. Um, and I think that the how to play video is, is actually pretty nice. Um, I think it's high quality. Uh, we had this professional voiceover actor uh, helping us out, you know, in terms of making things understandable. Um, and and uh, we had a couple of YouTubers that made their own version of the uh, how to play video. And I think that at, at today, if I could make something different, I would go back and I would do all of that before the campaign. But again, it's our first, basically, uh, we didn't know better uh, at the time. But but now I know that that would have made things so much easier. Yeah, you um, came through with it. I mean, it, it's not very common for somebody to be able to make a card game and sell it online with no visual way to see how it plays other than the, the rule book that you had. So. Uh, it just goes to show you that the presentation of your campaign, how you communicated in it, and the art that was on the cards themselves were what really sold the game more than the gameplay itself, which kind of came after the fact. So uh, still inspiring and something uh, anybody that's listening to this can learn from is that um, if you don't have the funds or the time or just neglected to get to that point in your campaign, it doesn't mean you can't fund. It just means that you're going to be funding a little bit differently than you might have with those preview or review videos. And if you get it done by a professional, those can be really expensive anyway. So sometimes it's not worth it. Yeah. And I also think that that's, that's actually quite interesting um, because I see a lot of pressure on, you know, first-time creators in terms of why isn't this, why isn't this more professional than what you have at the moment? I think that that's a bad attitude um, because I think that Kickstarter needs to be a platform where everyone is entitled and allowed to, to do whatever they like. And if people don't like it, then just scroll on, find something different. Um, but I think it's 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 both interesting and a bit confusing that you know people are expecting uh, every Kickstarter campaign to be this extremely professional, like top tier campaign, you know, done by professional graphic designers and stuff like that. 
um, that that we start to expect from you know the bigger companies because they also are on Kickstarter. Um, but it, it just sets these almost unrealistic expectations to first-time creators that you need you need to do you know above your your both expectations and, and your own skills. Uh, and many people don't have that 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 possibility. Uh, and I think that scares a lot of people from actually going on Kickstarter. Yeah, and the only kind of workaround behind that is if you can build your audience through play tests and social media and prove that your game is good enough in its kind of infancy, then you might have some success on Kickstarter. But otherwise, like you said, you have to have an, a pretty much finished professional looking product if you even want to get not, um, basically someone that wasn't looking for your game to back it. But if you already have a legion of followers who are going to back it when you click launch anyway, then then you might survive in that that type of uh, early phase yeah cool well what's your product you've proven that you have what it takes to think of a product to create it to share it to fund it to deliver it i mean that alone is a great accomplishment and an inspiration for anybody that's listening and wants to share their own creations with the world but i know you at Cortado games have some other aspirations i mean um you and i talked uh, on t- text and previously about casuza uh, island and then you have a couple other games i think you have one called eternal and one called realm uh, so just curious, uh, what stages are Eternal and Realm on that I see on your website, and what are the plans for Cthulhu Island? Um, so the, the Cthulhu Island is a, a Euro worker placement, area control, um, resource management uh, game where we have these awesome uh, miniatures that um, one of our sculptors have, have made. And I'm really excited about that because for me personally, I know a lot of people are thinking, not, not another Cthulhu game. Um, <laughs> but, but for me personally, I love that theme. I love the, uh, the whole H.P. Lovecraft universe. Um, I love the books. I love the games. Um, and, and Fantasy Flight is, uh, is a huge believer of, of that specific genre. They, they almost uh, made it their own uh, with that whole Arkham Horror uh, setting that they have. Yeah. Um, so, so basically, I thought um, I was li- I was listening to the Secret Cabal podcast, and they talked about um, having I think it was something like a pandemic and, and Cthulhu roaming around. They they made a, a joke about that, and just a, a, a thought popped into my head: What if you took you know the combination between Jurassic Park and Cthulhu? So instead of having you know dinosaurs in your park, you are having these Cthulhu monsters instead. Um, so that's basically the simplest explanation of what Cthulhu Island is. So you are this, this, this crazy individual that's running a theme park and you're summoning your elder ones into that theme park. And in order to do that, you need to r- r- run around in, in this area control game, uh, finding these monsters, finding visitors that want to visit the monsters and so on. So from from a description it sounds like a fun game but from a gameplay and artwork it's actually a bit more serious so we're trying to have you know this serious comic uh, relief going on um and i think it's it's going to be amazing uh, once we uh, we hit kickstarter but it, it's going to take uh, a couple of months before we do that so at the moment we're you know in, in the middle of play testing and uh, finalizing some of the uh, important art pieces um taking all the experience that we had from since you know working that into to this game so now we are going uh, to reviewers and we're going to media before we're going to kickstarter so we, we sort of have you know the visual and the the uh, review package ready for people to see before they, uh, they pledge the game um, and i think that's going to be a big change for us uh, we need to 
to understand how to run that process um, better and better, basically. Yeah, and even looking at your image on Facebook, for example, you've got a kind of a visualization of the box, a couple of hexes, a couple of stacks of square cards, dice, meeples, and then, of course, the centerpiece is those amazing miniatures that basically encompass that image. Um, and so is this something you've done before, Minis, or is this going to be a first thing for you to even explore the cost of production and distribution of such a component? Yes, yes. This is this is our first game exploring minions. Um, and we are only going to have four minions in the game. Uh, and they're going to be uh, you know, huge element in the game, but at, but at the same time, we're not we're not extending ourselves into an area that we are not really that comfortable in. Uh, so we're working together with a manufacturer that had huge experience in, in working with these miniatures, um, and we're limiting it to four miniatures, basically, saying that, okay, our first miniature game, it's going to be something that it's a good game, it's a, it's a visually stunning game, and we want to have, you know, uh, one of the best artists to, to make the miniatures, but we also want to make sure that we can actually, you know, finalize them uh, to the extent that people today are uh, expecting from miniatures. So we want to have something that's amazing, but we also, also want to make sure that we don't uh, overextend ourselves. Yeah, they, they absolutely do look stunning. So if anybody gets a chance, I'll make sure I throw a link in there, or you can always go to, quick, I don't know if it's on your website yet, but I'm sure if you, actually I typed it in Kazulo Island into Facebook and you'll find the image right away. So it's really cool to see that. And I guess the other part, like you said, when it comes to trying to market a game where it has so many games and so much popularity already, how do you break into that uh, license niche? First of all, how do you get the license? And second of all, how do you still sell it, even though there's already so much Cthulhu content out there? Yeah, I think that the the, the first thing is that Cthulhu is um, is public licensing, so you don't need to, to treat it um, or get it. Um, second is, I think that that's some of the interesting thing about Cthulhu. I think that's why you see so much Cthulhu. It's something that people are familiar with. They understand that they, they have expectations to the universe and they know how the universe can evolve. And adding that to a specific genre of games will create uh, new sensations. Um, so we are both tapping into something that people are familiar with and comfortable with. Um, and also that specific follower group. So again, some people might not like a Cthulhu game, but there is so many board gamers that love Cthulhu. So it's it's an easy license um, on IP to basically sort of tap into and, and play with. Um, so if you're not, you know, one of the bigger companies that can sort of, you know, attract uh, a Marvel IP or something similar, Lord of the Rings or whatever, um, Cthulhu is sort of the next best thing to do uh, because it's basically free to use. Yeah, that's something I'd never looked into. It's really interesting to hear about, uh, and I don't know how many other licenses are free to use, but the fact that Kuzulu is so well known and is free to make your own stuff whenever you feel like it, that's uh, a really interesting insight that you brought. So thanks for sharing that. And, and like you said, um, trying to bring something new to the table, it's just the same as any other niche, I guess, if you want to make a Euro game or if you want to make a fantasy game or sci-fi game, there's thousands of those out there too. So um, just... Uh, with Cthulhu, you really are bringing something amazing with those minis, and then you've got that kind of fun factor to it with that Jurassic Park theme. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing that when it does hit, hit Kickstarter, and I, I will be amazed at how you do, because when your first game gets 40,000, I can only imagine what your second game is going to do. So We're, we're nice crossing path. our fingers. <laughs> now, those other games that are on the Quartadu site, sorry, um, when it comes to Eternals and Realm, are those uh, something that you're selling online? Is that a line of miniatures, or is that something you have planned for next year? 
No, so the idea is that uh, for Kotaro Games, we want to we wanna progress into our own IP with Sins. Um, and, and obviously Sins as a, as a concept, as an uh, ideology, is not, is not an IP. But we want to take that fantasy setting that we sort of visualize through our artwork and want to create a realm around it and story around that um, and make more games in that specific setting with that specific artwork. Um, so so it's, it's basically two parts of a strategy. One is um, saying to, to our followers of Sins that more games are coming in that specific sh- setting. Um, and uh, Eternals is a, a hex skirmish battle game similar to uh, games like God Tia and Warhammer Underworlds, if people know that, uh, where you basically have you know a warband and you're fighting against another warband and you are uh, progressing through hexes on the board. Um, and then each warband has like a, a specific uh, ability that they can sort of bring to the battle. So in this specific thing, we're taking the seven sins, we're making seven different warbands. So for example, Wrath and his followers can battle, you know, Greed and his tentacles uh, in this specific setting. Um, so it's basically saying, how do we take the card game and make it into a miniature game where you battle each other? Uh, that's, that's sort of the idea. Um, and at the moment, we are halfway through development, uh, but I don't think we will see this game maybe at the end of the year or maybe at the start of next year. It really depends on how things are progressing as uh, we're sort of, you know, designing our way through it. It needs to be perfect before we, we put it out. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I think you've got a good future ahead of you with it because it, it looks fantastic and your kind of 3D renderings of the minis that might come with it are great. And I guess um, starting off with Kasulu Lion and, and just testing out those that four mini game will give you that experience and insight that you need before you really push Sins to that next level. So, Yeah, I, I just got job. the shipping notice today that uh, we, we had the, all the miniatures, we had them 3D printed. And I just got the shipping notice today that they're, they're arriving here tomorrow. So I'm like... You know, a kit, kit before Christmas. <laughs> yeah, it's like Christmas. I, I'm the same way. I've got four minis that I put together for a game that I'm launching in June, and it's just uh, he got confirmation they're printed today, shipping tomorrow. And it's like, ah, can't wait to get those in my hands just to see exactly. what they look like. Because being, they're being printed in full color, which is something I haven't seen firsthand before. So. Oh, wow. That sounds amazing. It's expensive, though, so it's, it's more just for um, promotional and, and sharing what potential the game could have uh, more than actually trying to sell those minis on the Kickstarter. But it'll be neat either way just to see them, uh, something that you kind of drew and created and then work with an artist to, to make look better and see that come full circle. Yeah, and I got to say that that's actually some of the things that I, I um, come to really appreciate about all of this and, and game design in general it's not the specific game design, it's working with different artists, all these talented people around the world. And every day, you know, uh, because of the time differences. So uh, usually when I go to sleep at night, I have a couple of uh, comments, you know, working with different artists and, and different sculptors, uh, you know, just pushing them in different directions. And then I wake, when I wake up in the morning, I see the results of what they've been doing um, in, in those hours. And it's just, it is such a pleasure uh, to, to have that interaction and, and, and bringing that forward in the game. So that, that's something I'm, I'm extremely humble about, that I'm, I'm having that chance to do something like that. Yeah, I, I had no idea when I got into game design that I would be talking to artists from Italy and the UK and then talking to distributors from China and then talking to backers from Australia. Like I, I had no concept of that when I got into gaming. I just wanted to make something for fun. And 
it, it's absolutely astounding what you get drawn into and and how how wide the world of hobby gaming is and how much people are just passionate about it it's really cool so and you in denmark i mean that was one of the questions i had which um over 50 percent of backers are often from us or north america and so how did that affect you trying to create a game in denmark and trying to get it play tested and answering people's questions um i think that i wanted to, to have a principle especially because i saw that it was important for people that you could sort of answer them as quickly as possible so in that month, when that Kickstarter ran, I was just like, you know, awake 24 hours uh, every day. Um, that's not true, but, but it felt like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I wanted to, to first thing see you that. Do, first thing you do is wake up, hit refresh, and then answer yeah. questions. Exactly. And just, I, I just wanted to, to be there uh, for every comment. And I wanted to, to show people that we were actually quite serious about this. So whenever people uh, had a question uh, on Facebook or on Kickstarter, I would answer it immediately, and I still do that uh, to this very day because I think it's it's that that's what I can do. I can be there, uh, part of the dialogue and part of the question, and you can really see that people are amazed when they you know send an an, uh, an email or a message or something like that, and then two seconds later you get a reply. It's like wow, what happened? Um, and I think that's that's what I want to to be known for if we are establishing a brand that we are there. Uh, and we are in dialogue. And of course, as, as we progress and we have titles uh, coming out, um, that's going to be a challenge. But I want to see how we can maintain that um, as we go forward. Yeah, that's excellent. And uh, you and I were speaking before the call just how uh, Jamie Stegmeyer had some inspirational games and just his uh, methodology behind his company and how he responds to every single comment and every single media outlet that he has is just impossible to to believe and yet um to do it yourself is is uh an exciting way to follow in those footsteps yeah i also think it's, it's interesting from a design point of view because um when i did this through the campaign um i have to uh, uh sorry um i have two um uh, partners in the company uh, and they were just like you know let's let's just pull the messages together and then answer you know in in accordance with with our resources and our time and stuff like that and i thought that well i like being part of that dialogue i, I like understanding what people are thinking and how they're reacting because it gives me a sense of of game design and how to cater my design to those experiences and needs that they have i think that's that's really interesting uh, that you, you you are so closely related to to your, your community that you can also you know not basic not not design completely what they want because I, I think that every design needs a vision and it needs uh, an element of uh, surprise and exploration um, but but designing to that experiencing that they're looking for basically um, so being so close to the community really gave me that insight um, to what our both since as it was progressing but also all our other games what is it that we, we want to create what is it that people are looking for yeah, it's uh, amazing what kind of suggestions sometimes they come up with. And um, no matter what decision you make, I mean, you might please five people and still make somebody else angry, but you can figure out what the masses want and what will best be suitable for you as long as it's within, like you said, your original vision, because you don't want to break that. Otherwise, you kind of just turn your game into shambles. Exactly. As you want to get the essence of what people are thinking. Yeah, great word, essence. That works. 
All right. Well, like I said, uh, you've got a great path in front of you. You're, it looks like you've got the next couple of years planned out. Casuzel Island will be coming out uh, later this year, so I'll be following that. But beyond kind of these upcoming games and sins, is there anything that you want to be remembered for in this hobby down the road? Do you have a, a long-term plan? Yeah, so basically, we, we, we sat down and we wanted to make um, a company. Um, and we wanted to be, be more than just... Uh, uh, bulking designers so so at the moment we're basically trying to establish ourselves as uh, as publishers um so so we're taking in other designers helping us on projects for the next year and stuff like that um so that's really exciting how all of this is progressing and and when you start to to go into publishing and all the questions and all the things that you need to think about in that area as well um really uh, basically blows your mind um, so I think that in the end, I don't know what I, exactly I want to be remembered for, but hopefully uh, creating good games that people enjoy. And um, for me, it's it's all about that fun factor, uh, regardless of theme and mechanics and stuff like that. But if you walk away from a game thinking, "Holy shit, that that was that was interesting," um, I think I, I did my job. Uh, I don't expect to hit that mark every time, but uh, hopefully that's that's the the ideology that I can infuse into our company uh, as we grow and as we progress uh, through more and more titles. Yeah, I mean, with every title you make, you are impacting people's lives, the people that backed it and the people that get to play it. I mean, the people that get to play it may have not even heard of Kickstarter, but then their friends bring it to a gaming group and you never know where it's going to show up or when it's gonna, somebody's going to post it on Facebook or Instagram. It's really exciting to see those when they do pop up. So that's a great aspiration there. And I guess the last couple of questions or last question I have for you is what kind of games do you play that inspire you to make the games that your your company is creating? Mm, well, that's a good question. Um, well, basically, I see myself in, as an omni gamer. I don't uh, I tend to to balance between, you know, both Ameritrash and Euro games. Um, I really love um, very thematic games, but also very strategic games. Um, but I play basically everything, you know, everything from uh, Space Hulk, where everything is like, you know, so random and, and all actions are decided by dice, um, to, to Vidla Serta's extremely heavy uh, Euro games. So I don't think of myself as, you know, I like that genre, that, this specific genre. Um, but obviously for since, uh, deck building is, is something that I really love. Uh, I think it's, it's a simple, it's an elegant mechanism that, that uh, you can build into to most games. Um, but we wanted to take it a bit further uh, with Sins and, and add a bit of pusher lock and, and deck deconstruction uh, mechanism, um, which is a, a thing that Daniel, uh, my partner, worked on. Um, and I think that for the games going forward, I think I want to create something that is, you know, basically a combination of these things. I want to create omni games that are uh, equal part strategy and equal part. Uh, I want. I, I don't want to say randomness because that that usually raises a red flag for many people. But I want to have an element of surprise in my games. Um, so so something you draw, a, a dice you roll, or something like that. Not something that's going to be like. Well, it doesn't really matter what I do because the dice is gonna decide it anyway. But but enough that you feel surprised in what you do. Something uncertainty um, added to the game, right? Um, I think that's 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 what I'm trying to infuse into to all the games. That there's that 
that adrenaline pumping um, whenever you take an action or whenever you, you progress throughout the game. Yeah, I like that term omni-gamer, and there's so much you can learn when you're trying games across different themes and across different um, mechanics and, and backgrounds. Ameritrash, like you said, Euro games, uh, worker placement, deck building, all, all those different things. You never know what nugget you're going to pull out of it that'll inspire your game. So uh, I love the fact that you're into that omni mentality. And when you're talking about randomness and dice, one of the games I just learned last week is called Root, which has huge fame on um, the board game lists and whatnot, and uh, tons of video content about it. But in the game of Root, all of combat is resolved by dice. But if you you won't win if you don't have a strategy. And it's really neat to see how just a, a couple dice help change the results, but can't really change the entire game state. So um, if you use randomness in the right aspect, it adds that fun like you talked about, but doesn't determine the entire game. Exactly, and I think that if you have dice. But you also have dice mitigation, so you have, you know, a way to prepare yourself for the for the uh, randomness. Um, so you might get you might not get what you wanted, but you might be able to sacrifice something to get what you wanted. Uh, I think that yeah. those are interesting elements to to um, build into your game that you can sort of work with the unknown, and you can you can sort of uh, push your luck or or basically put your faith in whatever you draw, or you you can sacrifice something to get exactly what you want. Um, so it, it gives you that choice uh, between, you know, the unknown and the known, uh, but you need to pay, you know, in, in order to get exactly what you want. Yeah, that, that's the best part about Castles of Burgundy is you got to roll the dice, but if you got workers, you can have whatever number you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Jacob. I really hope that your Kickstarter journey with Cthulhu Island in the future and the future of Sins and our discussions about it can help inspire and educate some other creators out there to keep working at and making their ideas turn into reality. I mean, you, what you did with Sins is uh, truly um, an accomplishment. And I think anybody that looks at that campaign and looks at your communication in the the comments and just what looks at the layout, I mean, you had a great graphic design to that campaign. You could learn a lot just from your single uh, venture there. And if they follow you, they can see what you're up to in the future. So thanks for joining me, Jacob. Yeah, and thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been great. And for those of you listening to the podcast, if there's one thing you can do to encourage and motivate other Kickstarter journeys, just take a minute and a dollar or two, support some project that catches your eye today. We might not be able to buy all the cool things we see, but that little bit can help pad their bottom line and give them that motivation to keep on their on their future there. Feel free to subscribe or follow, and we'll have some more Kickstarter journeys coming in the future. And take care, Jacob. You too. Bye-bye.